If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. Yours truly, Bill Alexander, with you. Time now is seven minutes after the hour of 12 o'clock. It is a Saturday, December 9th, 1995. The program we call it The Brunch with Bill, because I'm Bill. <laughs> and it's my program. Right now, joining us from uh, California is Mr. Steve Allen, a man who has been doing a lot of things. If I had half his talent, I'd be happy. Mr. Allen, are you there? Yes, I am, Bill. Nice to talk to you today. Nice to talk to you, and thank you for taking time out with us on a Saturday morning. It's okay. And it's early for you there, isn't it? Well, not too bad. <laughs> Nine o'clock. Nine o'clock. Where are you at today, by the way? I'm home. Okay. And where's your home at? It's uh, up in the hills uh, above uh, an area called the San Fernando Valley, a subsection called Royal Oaks. Oh, okay. I uh, have relatives that live in that area. Ah. So, um, familiar with that. And um, this, I received your book this week. The book is entitled The Man Who Turned Back the Clock and Other Short Stories. Mm-hmm. And I was going through the bio information that they sent me concerning this book, and I did not realize what an accomplished author that you are. And, and the, some of the stuff and the material you did, most people would think it would be more with comedy and stuff like that, but you've tackled a large variety of uh, topics and uh, subjects. Yes, uh, I was a citizen and a human being, of course, before I was a comedian, and uh, I didn't stop being the other two when I became the third. As a matter of fact, uh, it all started very early in childhood. I was playing piano in the school orchestras and uh, making speeches in the school assemblies and acting in the school plays and writing for the school newspapers and magazines and singing and all that stuff. So I've always uh, been involved involved with a pattern of of, uh, a long list of activities. And um, when you broke into, say, show business, how did you do, do that? How, what was your first uh, job in that line of entertaining? Well, uh, it's a little more complex than uh, it would be putting that question to other people because, in, in a sense, I was born into show business. Okay. My mother and father were uh, vaudeville entertainers, comedy, uh, comedy people. And, uh, but my first regular job, after the usual uh, amateur work and college-level work, that sort of thing, was at a CBS uh, radio station in Phoenix, Arizona, back in the early 40s. I quit school at at Arizona State University to uh, take a job, and uh, never looked back. (laughs) After several years in radio, I moved into television, and that covers about the last 50 years of activity. And um, where where were you where were you born and raised at in the uh, Southwest or? Uh, no, I was born in New York City in Harlem, okay. as a matter of fact. And uh, then, because my mother and father, as I said, were traveling entertainers, that we moved around a great deal. I spent most of my childhood, but not all of it, in Chicago. 
Okay. Um, what I'm going to do right now is uh, invite our uh, audience out there to give us phone calls. Our number is 437-1130. That's for the Fayette County area, 938-2000 for the Mid-Mon Valley, and 882-1130 for Metro and Suburban Pittsburgh. Something else, uh, a caller of mine this week brought up um, a program that you did on public television a few years back, actually about uh, 13 years ago is when it went off, called a Meeting of the Minds. Meeting of the Minds, yes. And he was curious where you came up with the idea of doing something like this. I don't think anybody, Bill, knows how any idea occurs, especially if it's quite novel. Uh-huh. Uh, at least it is normal not to know how you got an idea. It often doesn't have anything to do with what you happen to be doing when the idea hit you. As a matter of fact, in another context, I wrote a song lyric that says that some people might remember it. Uh, you're walking along the street or you're at a party or else you're alone and then you suddenly dig. It's called This Could Be the Church, Something Big. And one of the points it makes is that you cannot possibly predict when any uh, particular reaction or fresh idea is going to occur to you. Uh, because of my awareness of that, I keep a tape recorder with me at all times. And in fact, for the last 25 years or so, I've done all my writing by dictation. And the method is uh, is quite convenient. So the answer, again, to the question is, uh, beats the hell out of me. <laughs> I just got this great idea and proceeded to develop it. And the public bought into it. Same oh, way. Yeah. Same way with... Uh... As a matter of fact, it, it's still available. Uh, it exists in the form of video cassettes. It's also selling well right now in the form of audio cassettes. Perhaps we should explain, uh, you and I are both assuming that all your listeners know what we're talking about, and since they don't, I'll, I'll describe it. Okay. Um, it was one more television talk show, but it had the distinction that all of the guests were important figures from history. Among them were uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Cleopatra, uh, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Francis Bacon, uh, Florence Nightingale, people whose ideas have literally affected all of our lives right now, uh, wherever we are. And... Uh, it, it's a marvelous form of education. It's still being used in education. It's still being used. The tapes are still being used at many universities, colleges, high schools, and, of course, in individual homes. When you presented this idea to um, the producing company or PBS, how did you present this this idea to them? Because it's it's something that's way out there saying that you're going to take historical figures and put them in a roundtable situation, having them discuss uh, certain topics of the day. Yes. Uh, I just wrote letters to different people, and uh, I, it would add up to quite a dull story now, but it did take 18 years to get the show on the air. Mm -hmm. So there's a moral effect. <laughs> Persistence. Yes. I didn't work at it every day for 18 years, but every so often I would realize that the people had said, no, thank you, we're wrong, and I thought, this is stupid, we got to try again on this, so we would try, and eventually it worked out. And with what you've seen now with uh, with what's happening on television, especially with late-night television, since you're considered the uh, one of the founders of the uh, talk show type, uh, Tonight Show, the best way I can put it, yeah, if format. You, if you can tell me who the others were, I'm happy to uh, <laughs> write them some <laughs> Okay, you are then. I, I apologize for stating it that way. <laughs> but... Uh, the way you've seen, say, the Jay Leno's come about, the David Letterman's and all these other ones that have taken this format, pretty much doing it the same way you did. Yes. But but uh, doing a uh, – uh, see, I, I was not old enough to uh, remember seeing your program live. <laughs> and from the tapes that I have seen, yours seemed more fresh, more unique, and it was all done live. Am I correct? Uh, yes, we were uh, doing the shows live in those days. Uh, once in a while, I've something got goofed up, I would scream, stop tape, but nobody knew what I was talking about because they hadn't invented tape. <laughs> but, uh, well, thank you for your complimentary adjectives. Yeah, I would never dream of saying that my version was any better than anybody else's. There have been so many examples of them, of the form over the years. But it is simply a fact that ours painted on a much wider canvas, so to speak. We did many more things, and the shows were much more experimental. The reason that they're not very experimental or creative anymore, although, although both Jay and David do a fine job as hosts, is that uh, uh, as the show evolved, after I, I walked away from it after four years to do more important primetime work, and then uh, Jack Parr was uh, hired, and he did it very well for the next five years. Right. But uh, Jack decided, having seen my version and, and uh, wanting to reconstruct the show to convenience himself, he narrowed it down to only the talk show formula, whereas uh, 
during my four years, it was a talk show most nights, but uh, not always. Sometimes we would have the Count Basie band and have them play for 25 minutes, or we would have uh, political discussions, or uh, we, I'd take the cameras out in the street. We'd do all kinds of uh, unusual and creative things. So as I say, Jack decided not to bother about all of that, and he made it a much more conversation show, which is a little different than what the guys are now doing. Now you get a series of interviews, and uh, no matter how fascinating or famous uh, or in demand a given guest is, uh, David Letterman or Jay just get rid of him after seven or eight or ten minutes, and uh, he leaves. But uh, Jack didn't make that mistake. Uh, if a guest was important and, and coming up with good stuff, he would just keep him there for the whole hour and keep adding people. So pretty quickly you had a group of three or four or five in conversation. And uh, then Johnny Carson just took over and did a sort of a mixture of Jack's form and my form, and then, then, then for his 30 years, nothing changed. So the guys now do not do any changing with the basic machinery. Do you think the way that you did the program when it was started would work today? Oh, sure. Do you, Basically, when a show of this sort works, because the, the, the form was very loose, it, it can accommodate almost anything the host wants to do if he has any ideas. Uh, when people in the viewing audience say that they like or dislike a given show, what they're almost inevitably talking about is their reaction to the host. There's no point in saying, I don't like the Jay Leno show because there's nothing wrong with the band and right. wrong with the announcer and the scenery and the to the audience and all the st stock factors. Um, but if people like Jay, as I do, then they say, I like the show. But again, they're really talking about the host, whether that's Johnny or Jack Parr or Griffin or whoever it has been. When you did your program, and from what I remember seeing, they were... Um you had a lot more of um, of theatrics, of skits, where you would actually have um, your own. Uh, how do I want to put the word? You would you would have your own actors or such like that. The one I'm thinking of right now is Louis Nye, who would be on the streets when you take the cameras out, doing stuff like that, uh, compared uh, to what's being done today. Yeah, we we did more sketches. Um uh, that's partly because uh, up to that point I'd always done comedy, so I, I didn't see the, the, the thrill of just suddenly saying to a movie star, tell me about your new movie. You know, we, we were always looking for the comic angle. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, anyway, it, it was designed chiefly for my own convenience and based originally on, on what had worked for me in doing comedy and radio. I did a late night show uh, in Los Angeles uh, for CBS. Uh, in the late 40s, and uh, there was little or no budget and uh, no band. It was really a one-man show for, for 60 minutes. So I uh, just did simple things. I read interesting mail, and I just found interesting items in newspapers. Uh, I went out in the audience with a hand mic. Uh, I might walk down the hall with a hand mic, even though we were just on the radio. And all of that was so uh, convenient and so simple and so effective that I simply kept that general formula when I moved into uh, television. If it was offered to you today, would you go back to doing television uh, somewhat of a basic format of what you did uh, years ago? If it, if it demanded my presence five nights a week, if that's what you mean, the answer is no. Uh, but of course, it wouldn't be necessary to do that. You can tape two and three shows a day now, and on that basis, I would at least consider it. But I don't expect it to happen. <laughs> I, I do work seven days a week, uh -huh. uh, far more than obviously other folks do. So I'm constantly out performing in concerts. Uh, recently, I was at Caesar's, uh, not Caesar's Palace, uh, the, uh, Stardust in uh, Las Vegas for three weeks. Before that, worked in Atlantic City, and uh, the, the, I don't really have any time to add anything else. But uh, it's always fun to be active. Um, if uh, there are any callers out there that would like to uh, come in and ask questions, they're more than welcome to. The phone and numbers are... While we're waiting for them, yes. uh, I'll be happy to tell you more about uh, the book. Uh... That's what I wanted to get into right next. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> it's 437-1130 for Fayette County, 938-2000 for the Mid-Mon Valley, and 882-1130 for Metro and Suburban Pittsburgh. And the book is entitled The Man Who Turned Back the Clock and Other Short Stories. I received the book um, in the middle of this week, and I've gone through some of it, and um, I am very impressed with what I've read so far. And with the material that I see in this book, is any of it based on anything that you've been through? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, some of the stories are simply autobiographical. The one, I forget the title of it, uh, I think it's called It's Nice to See You Again. It's a story about what happened to me um, when I was going to high school in Chicago. 
so that one, as I say, is fully autobiographical. In fact, the very opening story in the book, titled The Sunday Morning Shift, which will relate to your own experience. Yes, very much so. <laughs> uh, is, is a true story. Um, when I first got that job, as I said in this in Arizona radio station, as the new man on staff, I was given the least desirable uh, shift of duty. So I um, had to get up at about 4.30 in the morning and, and to get to the station to open it up at 6 o'clock. There was nobody there but a janitor and an engineer and myself. And uh, chiefly, my duties were simple enough. It wasn't very hard work. I introduced uh, eight or nine Reverend this and Reverend that, uh, again, it being Sunday morning. And so in the case of one of them, uh, something rather dramatic occurred, and that's what that story relates to. And there are several other uh, autobiographical stories in the book. Then there's, uh, there's another category of material, all of which is based on reality. In other words, the stories are true, but the events described did not happen to me. The other one, that uh, the Sunday morning shift, when I saw that and when I see that word morning shift, I jump anything real quick because of what I do. Yeah. And I was reading it going, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of people that are in this line of work that can relate to that story right there because there's always been something like that that has happened in our yes. past, which is a, quite a kick. Now, another one that, that really uh, that got me going is the story that's entitled the same title as the book, The Man Who Turned Back the Clock. Yes, that relates to the ancient uh, fantasy, which I guess has occurred at one point or another to everyone, and is usually expressed by something like, oh boy, if I had my life to live over again. Mm -hmm. That's, of course, fantasy, since such things never have occurred and never will, but it's a, a fundamental game to play with oneself. And uh, it, anyway, in this particular uh, account, without bothering to explain how the trick is turned, the man does have that opportunity. And, and uh, there's a, even a rich literary uh, and dramatic tradition uh, uh, based on this same concept. There are the old films, uh, uh, Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2, and then he, Mark Twain dealt with it uh, in his uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Right. So, as I say, there's uh, an, an ancient history to the general idea. Anyway, in this particular story, the uh, individual's ambitions are rather modest. He, he realizes that anyone with knowledge of the future could become rich quite easily, simply by knowing the price of a certain stock or whatever it might be, or knowing what business is going to succeed. But he, he wants to position himself shortly before some um, peculiarities of societal development hit big. Uh, one of them, for example, is the hula hoop. I don't even know if they have those anymore, but about 30 years ago, they were the biggest. They're just big plastic hoops. You put them around your waist, and you do the hula. Sounds like a stupid idea. Yeah. But or it made the, money for somebody. Right. <laughs> oh, it made millions. It was the biggest toy in America for, I don't know, a few years. So, um, anyway, as you know, having read the story, he makes an appointment with the head of Mattel Toys, and uh, he sets it up like about a month before the hula hoop did break big. And as soon as he describes it, he's thrown out of the office because yeah. the idea sounds so stupid. And that's that's what happens with all of his proposals. And the other one that I think is uh, very appropriate for what has been happening recently is when he tries to introduce the Beatles. Yes. And I got a real kick out of that, especially talking about the haircuts, the way they comb their hair. Yeah. They now, I mean, we, we now live in, a, in, in the age of bad haircuts. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when if you were a attractive fellow, you wanted to look like Gary Cooper or Clark Gable or somebody with a normal haircut, but those days, I'm afraid, are gone forever. Unless normality comes back as a freak attraction, it's hard to say. And then the other two that he tries to introduce it TV-wise is Let's Make a Deal yeah. and The Gong Show. Right. <laughs> and two programs. I can't see why anybody would buy those. Yeah, but... and, uh, well, I'm with you, and that was the point of the story. He gets, keeps getting thrown out of people's offices for the very stupidity of his ideas. Right. We have a caller right now. He's uh, Huck, and he's in uh, Jefferson. Hello, Huck. You're on the air with Mr. Allen. Oh, yes. I'd like to uh, thank Mr. Allen for the... For his sense of humor, the comedy, the good times. I enjoyed that. There's not enough in uh, in a lifetime of, of all the negative things that's happening. I'm uh, very grateful for his uh, programs. Well, I appreciate your good wishes, and thank you for calling. Uh, one more thing, uh, the question. Uh, up to date, uh, we still have a lot of good comedians. Uh, there's a lot of mean-spirited people out there. Mm -hmm. And even back in your times, I can remember Groucho Marx. And is later in his career making a statement uh, 
if you know the far right is uh, part of the Christian coalition, which I have nothing against religion. It's a, it's a good thing. But I can remember him saying about one particular religious that the, uh, he, he uh, wasn't saying thanks, but no thanks for the misery that uh, they had caused uh, in his field because of their lack of a sense of humor. Uh, I don't know if you remember his comment or not. I don't know exactly. Uh, no, I, I, I've never heard of the incident before. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm thankful for your generation of, uh, of people that make people laugh, and we need more of it. Well, very kind of you. I suppose what distinguishes uh, the generation of those of us who are, let's say, over 65, is that we got all our laughs without doing dirty jokes, whereas today there's, uh, it's quite the other side of the, the theater's daughter. Do you see any comedians today that are doing the same type of humor that was done, say, 30, 40 years ago? That uh, well, there are some who can and, and could in that they are really naturally funny. There's no shortage of funny people. In fact, there are more of them now than ever. Um, I wrote an article back in the 50s at the request of the Atlantic Monthly magazine, they just wanted me to do a report on American comedy as of that point, about 1957 or so. And one of my more casual observations was that there were only then about 50 comedians in show business. And, and now it, it sounds like an, an astonishing figure. And even then, the average American probably couldn't have named 30 of them. But uh, they were around. Now the number actually is closer to 5,000, and they haven't even exceeded that point because new people keep seeing how you know, simple it is to get laughs if they have funny ears or, <laughs> or something that gives them a head start. With the way that, and the way Huck mentioned some mean spirited humor, you're seeing that a lot of these comedians and comedians are getting sitcoms based on their routines now. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that what they've turned in from a stand-up routine into a 30-minute TV program is actually uh, creative in any way, or are they oh, just yes. using... That's actually one of the better developments in, in comedy. Um, the, the Seinfeld show, the Mad About You show, the Tim Allen show, uh, what, what television executives are doing is starting with a very important ingredient, a funny person, a professionally and already successful funny person. Uh, that is as distinguished from just hiring a bunch of actors, some of whom may have never done comedy in their lives, mm -hmm. and, and trying to make them seem funny. And sometimes that has worked too. But uh, if you want really fun, you know, uh, funny sitcoms, it does help to have a Lucille Ball to start with or a Jackie Gleason or whoever you want to mention. However, the, the other category can succeed if the people are charming. Nobody ever thought that uh, the orchestra leader of the 1930s named Ozzie Nelson was funny for a very good reason. He wasn't, but he was charming. Right. And his lovely wife, uh, Harriet Hilliard, who used to sing with his band, wasn't funny either, but she was sort of an ideal mom type, and so they had a, a very fine show. But if you want really laughs, you know, hearty laughter, it, it makes great sense to start with a funny person, whether you're talking about Roseanne or Carol Burnett or Mickey Mouse or whoever you might be talking about. <laughs> well, Steve, we have to uh, pause right here for a break, and then we'll come back to more phone calls here at AM 1130 WASB. The phone numbers are 437-1130 for Fayette County, 938-2000 for the Mid-Mon Valley, and 882-1130 for Metro and Suburban Pittsburgh. If you're outside the state of Pennsylvania, the area code is 412. We'll be back with more conversation with Steve Allen here at AM 1130 WASP. Just Between Friends, we're AM 1130, WASP Brownsville. Now is at 12.31. Yours truly, Bill Alexander, on the radio with you on a Saturday afternoon here at AM 1130 WASP. And on the phone line from California, we have Steve Allen. He is joining us, taking time out of his Saturday morning to uh, talk with us. If you'd like to talk to Steve, the numbers are 437-1130 for Fayette County, 938-2000 for the Mid-Mon Valley, and 882-1134 Metro and Suburban Pittsburgh. During the break, uh, someone handed me a note 
someone that you worked with who also is from this part of uh, the area or part of the country, Don Knotts. Oh, yes. And he is uh, born in Morgantown, West Virginia, and went to WVU, which is right uh, across the state line from where I'm sitting at right now. Yes, I was with Don last night. And uh, how is he doing? He's fine. He has uh, some uh, trouble with his vision, but uh, other than that, he's still with us. And with the type of humor that, say, Don Knotts would do in the TV programs of uh, 20, 30 years ago, how do you compare them to what we are seeing today, the evolution of... Uh... Well, there was no uh, emphasis, whatever, no, in fact, not even any slight involvement with vulgarity, obscenity, uh, blasphemy, uh, toilet paper language. Mm -hmm. That's a whole new development. And it's not isolated in just the field of comedy or even just the larger field of entertainment. It's part of our general societal sickness. We are a very depraved, uh, criminal and corrupt and uh, disorganized society. Uh, I keep constantly explaining to my grandchildren that the, obviously they're going to school to learn how to count and spell and all that, right. but that the main purpose, the underlying purpose, is so that at the end of their formal education, uh, they are to be ladies and or gentlemen and uh, they've, they've accepted that and, and the, the subject sometimes comes up and we exchange our views with them but uh, the concept of the gentleman or the lady is almost uh, sounds like something foreign there's something in the area of science fiction now in today's culture uh, when uh, as i said last night uh, at an entertainment uh, here in town much of today's entertainment seems a matter of vulgarians entertaining barbarians and it's not uh, sad to say it's not a matter of depraved performers forcing um, ugly material on unwilling audiences. If you listen carefully to audience reaction as distinguished from the uh, entertainment from the stage on some uh, mostly cable comedy specials, you hear barbaric yelps and yawps uh, in proportion to how vulgar and shocking and ugly the uh, allegedly comic material is. And that's even more more depressing to me than that there are people on the stage that desperate that they will resort to that. Are, can can you pinpoint a time when you started to see the trend change of doing this type of humor? It seemed to come on a little bit in the late, well, in the 60s it started, and then it's just gotten steadily worse since then. There was a a little device I used to use. It's what is commonly called a ding bell. You see them to this day and sometimes in offices and on the front desks of hotel, uh, you know, check-in desks, that sort of thing, the way of signaling people if they're not too far away. Mm -hmm. And I used to have one on my desk when I hosted talk shows. I've done three different talk shows here. And uh, the one I was doing in the late 60s, I don't remember, I think the bell just happened to be there as a sound effect. And uh, it just gradually happened that when some guest uh, would say something, uh, in my opinion, too vulgar for the the venue, I would playfully just rap the bell and say, ah, ah, you know, just then we'd laugh and go on with the conversation. Uh, so I, I had that that fix on the late 60s, but uh, despite all the bell ringing things have gotten <laughs> much worse uh, since then. Now, we've always had the artifact known as the dirty joke with us that goes back to the beginning of human experience on our planet, I'm sure. Right. But... Uh, it was always uh, something uh, extraneous, something out beyond the borders. Now the borders have been uh, knocked down, the barriers have been knocked down, and uh, the vulgarity is, is uh, central to entertainment. And that, again, cannot possibly be construed as the sign of a good, healthy, uh, and aware society. Do you see us actually getting back to the way things were, or do you think it's just going to get worse before it gets better? Uh, both are possible, obviously. What you are seeing right now, and at high time too, is a wave of uh, negative reaction to this. Mm -hmm. um, I think about 80% of the American people, uh, so far as taking a formal position uh, is concerned, on the right side of this argument, that because I am constantly being spoken to by people I meet about what has happened to American comedy, what, who asked you know, comedians to do all this incredible filth that they're doing now, and people like Howard Stern on the radio and so forth. 
Um, and they, uh, what I tell them is, you don't like it? They say, no, I'm really angry about it. I say, well, what have you done about it? And they say, well, I don't know, what can I do? And I tell them, do simple things, write letters. I don't mean write to the man who's doing the dirty jokes. His secretary will probably keep it from it. But uh, write to the president of the network that hires him. And write to the advertiser. Write to the advertiser. Because we've just seen that recently with TV talk shows where advertisers have started to pull off those programs because of the type of information they're yeah. feeding the public. And, of course, it's significant to know, let's not give the advertisers any credit for this. Until people raised hell, they were perfectly content to right. sponsor garbage. Mm -hmm. So they don't deserve any credit, whatever. But they should be pressured. I'm not calling for a boycott. These are very complex issues. And the solution to any serious problem is not always either simple or self-evident. But you can't just sit back and say, this is terrible. People have got to organize and do something about it. And the afternoon talk shows, the more objectionable of them by and large, are a disgrace to television, to an even haphazard moral standards. They're nothing but money-grubbing. They're, they're grubbing for the, uh, the ratings, of course, because they equate into dollars. The right. Points. And it's, uh, it's indefensible. And if anything is more sickening than the phenomenon itself of seeing these uh, news coverages where you see some host of a show suddenly realizing that his you know, annual fee of $12 million is in jeopardy, trying to justify the garbage he's selling us. Well, it cannot be justified. Right now we have a caller on the line. It's Chris. He's calling from California. Hello, Chris. You're on the air. So how are you doing this morning? Fine. How are you doing, Chris? Good. Uh, I have a question for Mr. Allen. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Uh, I was at the movies last night, believe it or not, and I went and saw a Casino. I couldn't help but notice your short, quick cameo appearance. Uh, yes, thank you for noticing it. Well, why didn't they give you any lines? Did they give you lines and edit it out, or what happened? You, you must have been so busy saying to your companion, oh, that looks like Steve. <laughs> you did not hear my line. Yeah. Well, I saw you. You were sitting at the table, and it was, it was Robert De Niro who came over to you. Uh, and, and was, no, actually, it was Joe Pesci who came over to oh, you. Yeah, we, we did exchange a few sentences, oh, all of which were ad-libbed, by the way, in case you're interested in such detail. But, yeah, that's, as you correctly termed it, it's called a cameo appearance. I don't know who was the first one to do that, but I, I think it was, uh, it might have been Frank Sinatra. I remember years ago he was in some Paramount musical, but, like, for eight, eight seconds just walking through a scene, and uh, there's no longer that kind of a, uh, a surprise. Uh -huh. But, I heard him all through the movie last night, but you didn't see him. But uh, did you did you get to go to the premiere and you've seen the movie and everything? And, uh, uh, yeah, I saw it uh, the other night in New York. It's a powerful uh, film. As a matter of fact, it should be uh, required viewing for any concerned citizen. <laughs> and no, I'm quite serious about that. Uh, you don't take children to it because of the violin right. and the foul language, and you don't take your pastor or your grandmother. But as a citizen, uh, everyone should be familiar with the raw material. That's a true story, as I'm sure everyone knows. Mm -hmm. The character uh, played by uh, Joe Pesci, who's a marvelous actor and a marvelous guy, uh, that was the reality named Anthony um, Spilotro, uh, the, the mafia the, the killer and thug of the worst sort. And uh, the other man was a man named Frank uh, Lefty Rosenthal, the best Robert De Niro character. So the story is, as I say, true. And it relates to the problem we were talking about a few minutes ago, the incredible degree of depravity and corruption in our society. I enjoyed the movie, and I, it was kind of funny because I knew you were going to be on the show today. I'm like, I'm going to have to ask him about the movie. But uh, good luck with the book. It was nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris, for the call. I'm sure thing. Right now we have uh, Cowboy. He's calling from Brownsville. Hello, Cowboy. You're on the air. Steve Allen. Howdy. Hey, did, uh, where did you get this line? Smart, 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 smart. Because there's a smart town about uh, five miles from me, Steve. Well, I've always wanted to ask you this question. Uh, well, what's the name of the small town? Smock. Is that really the case? Yes, it's uh, right down the road from here. Fascinating. Well, it is an ancient uh, uh, word of Germanic extraction originally, and there is a German uh, immigration pattern involving Texas, as, as you know, but mm -hmm. about Pennsylvania, too. Pennsylvania Dutch, as they used to call it. But to the story, to get back to your question, is that the punchline of a moderately off-color story that was told to me one night by... Uh, Rob, uh, Bobby Rosengarten, a very fine drummer and band leader. He was the Cabot's band leader for all the years that Dick was in late night TV. And uh, he was our drummer on the old original Tonight Show. Unfortunately, it's about a five minute story. We don't have time now, but the punchline is. <laughs> the cry of a wild bird. There you go. Hey, Steve, we really miss you and Jane on television. Well, thank you. You don't have to miss Jane. She's on a big hit new series on CBS called High Society. 
I'll have to look for that. I haven't seen that in lately. It's on Monday nights, okay. uh, right after Murphy Brown. And I wanted to thank you for my mom, my dad, and myself, because uh, I'm a 41-year-old guy. I'm in the 60s, and it'd be because of them putting, propping me in front of the tube, I saw some most of your brilliant stuff. You gave us hours and hours of laughter. And what I want to ask you about this moral thing, uh, did you believe that it started around Lenny Bruce's time, or were you a fan of Lenny Bruce? Yes, I was a, not only a fan, a personal friend, and I'm one of the very few people who ever put him on television because he never did anything vulgar on television. He was a man of great sense. And I, I also, uh, I'm glad you brought this up because we must distinguish him from people like Andrew Dice, Claire, Howard Stern. I'm glad you're doing that because, you know, the, the rap is because uh, I remember kind of Lenny Bruce, but the way they're talking about it, was, it they're, they're attributing him that it was the beginning of the end and then you had the vulgarity of Red Fox and Richard Pryor, but they're uh, saying that's not the case. Yeah, you know, that's right. I, 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 disagree, I differ with that argument. Lenny would occasionally use uh, one of the common four-letter words, but only in a nightclub. Uh, only in a, you know, in other words, not when he was on the radio or TV. Because okay. with radio and TV, you have children watching and people who don't like that. But he was he was really a comic philosopher. He was a philosopher disguised as a comedian. He was always making a fascinating point, whether one differed with it or, or agreed with a separate question. But he was saying serious things in a very witty and clever way, an original way. So he was doing social commentary. Exactly, yes, that's my point. Whereas today's guys just uh, take any joke, which might be good or not, and put a couple of vile words into it and get a cheap shock laugh that way. It's a totally different thing. I've got two more questions for you, Steve. I'll let some of the other audience. Um, I heard you went through some health problems. How did you and Jane deal with that stuff about your National Enquirer and Star Magazine? And I'd go on and on. Uh, how did you deal with that kind of, uh, I guess, you put yourself under a microscope then? Well, uh, I think you, at least as I interpret what you said, so you're talking about two different questions. One, my physical uh, history, which I'll be glad to discuss in a moment, and the other, the stories about uh, us or anybody else in uh, the gossip magazine. Yeah. So as I say, those are two uh, separate issues. Uh, I haven't, unfortunately, had much attention paid to me by the gossip magazine. There was one classic instance in the Inquirer, I don't know, about 15 or so years ago, uh, big story on page two, and, uh, because it, it was only a short story. I can still remember the general thrust of the word. It, it said something like, the usually mild-mannered Steve Allen um, reported to the uh, uh, his agent's office building the other night about uh, two in the morning, and upon being denied entrance by a security guard, uh, physically assaulted the guard, broke through a plate glass window, forced his way into the building, and uh, you went on in that vein. Well, the point is, there's nothing of the sort ever happened. Okay. I don't know what they were talking about. So naturally, my attorney immediately got in touch with them, and they did quickly print a retraction. Uh, and it turned out that somebody named Steve Allen Johnson had actually done this thing. And why would the name Johnson in evidence? They didn't, uh, you know, call somebody and check. I don't know. But uh, anyway, that's what happened. But other than that, they've left me alone, and I appreciate that. Are you on the same page with them about, uh, you know, you have the, uh, the Ted Koppels of the world and the, and the Peter Jennings and Hereldas. They're saying that the National Enquirer was uh, above the curveball here with the O.J. Simpson uh, case. They were indicating that they, they were really uh, ahead of the pack and did some great journalistic stuff. Is that some kind of comedy sketch that you would probably write? I'm, I'm not sure, again, what the meaning of that question is. You mean that... They were saying that the National Enquirer is the one that brought all the information out to be public before the mainstream media got a hold of it. I'm, I'm not aware of that, but the, the National Enquirer naturally that doesn't have the uh, degree of respect for accuracy, the, the, the traditional journalistic uh, virtue of accuracy, and it's a, it boils down to dollars and cents. Um, they occasionally do have to... Uh, not only print retractions, but pay people who sue them for defamation of character. I think they, they had to pay Carol Burnett $6 million some years back because they printed a totally untrue story about her, which alleged that she was pugged. Steve, one last question. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for many, many years and hours of enjoyment. I just want to leave you with this, and I'll hang up. You can answer this question. I've noticed David Letterman. I was not his show was on NBC, but since he's gone to CBS, uh, the man seems like he's just flopping on stage like a dead fish. I mean, he can't even interview anybody. Do you think it's the writing of his writers that made David, David Letterman, or, or I guess what we're saying is the emperor has no clothes? And thanks again, Steve Arena. I'll hear you at the end of the program. <laughs> All right, thank you. Uh, well, there is to, to start uh, putting pieces together that might constitute an answer to the gentleman's question. Mm -hmm. uh, it's clear that uh, whereas a year or so ago, 
higher uh, ratings than Jay Leno. Uh, now the situation is the other way around, and, and uh, the Tonight Show now with Jay has the higher ratings. I think one of the explanatory factors is that uh, David, when he hosted the Oscars, really did not do a good job of it. He does a good job on his show, but not that night. And uh, I think that sort of burst the bubble. Uh, I, I wrote a little uh, essay a couple of years ago, uh, which, which relates to this. So if, if you have a couple of seconds, I'll just yeah, go right ahead. do a quick digest of it here. Let's suppose that uh, this evening uh, on his uh, newscast, and rather after a few items, uh, suddenly says, oh, just a moment, he reaches behind the desk, takes out of a drawer a simple cucumber, just a regular dark green cucumber, puts it on the table, they get a tight close-up of it for three or four seconds, then he takes it, puts it out of the sight, and says, and now back to the news. Very odd thing to happen. <laughs> then uh, Tom Brokaw does exactly the same thing with a cucumber. Next night, then the Ted Koppel, Peter Jennings, well, we know human nature, and we know television and the media. At the end of the week, the entire nation would be utterly fascinated with that cucumber. Now, it's nothing but a damn 39-cent cucumber. It doesn't mean anything any more than the next cucumber you'll see at the grocery store. But suddenly, all America's talking about it. There are vulgar jokes about the cucumbers. There's a new rock group called the Cucumber. <laughs> there are editorials in Time magazine about what's with the cucumber. And the reason for the fascination with that cucumber, whereas nobody ever has been interested in cucumbers, is that cucumber got on television. Television has a way of extrapolating, enlarging, glamorizing uh, anything uh, it, it shows. Uh, that that's one of the reasons all these unfortunate uh, freako people get on these afternoon talk shows right. and make asses of themselves. If somebody said, "Let's go do that just in a high school auditorium," none of them would show up. But wow, now they get to be on television and they get to be famous, you know, for a, a few minutes. So well, there's a sense in which all of us on television are cucumbers. Uh, if you take the average talk show, whether you use an actual example or an imaginary talk show, and let's say um, we suddenly we got a new set of rules. We're not going to do these talk shows on TV anymore. You now have to go to New York to see them in a Broadway theater, and you pay the standard New York Broadway theater prices, maybe $74 to get. Do you think anybody would show up to watch those talk shows? Not at all. Of course not. <laughs> Well, we're back to the cucumber story. Exactly. That has something to do with David Letterman's problems at the moment. Uh, right now, we have a caller uh, from Uniontown. Hello, Chuck. You're on the air with uh, Mr. Steve Allen. Oh, hi. Uh, hi, Mr. Steve Allen. <laughs> Hello. Hey, uh, oh, buddy. Uh, you are the greatest. I just feel it. I don't really have a question for you, but I do want to uh, uh, just send my message across to you. It's a privilege to speak with you. And I just want to say hello to you. My wife and I were living in New York City uh, at the time your show was on the air, and we really enjoyed your program. And it's too bad we don't have uh, more clean family shows like uh, uh, this on TV. You mentioned you have grandchildren, and, you know, uh, I just hope it comes around again, Steve. Well, thank you so much. Again, I wish you and Jane a whole lot of luck in your family, and uh, it's, it's just been a pleasure just saying hello to you. You provided so much entertainment for for our family. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks, Jeff, for the call. Yes, sir. Bye. Bye. Um, I was thinking about this. You were talking about uh, fame and, and the cucumber story, and I, I just think it's funny. Some of the uh, bits that I remember seeing that uh, you were able to take a phone book and make it funny. Yeah. Uh, well, to me, the whole universe is, is a straight line. Uh, that, that's why when I do my comedy concerts, which I'm constantly doing, uh, I'm the only comic in the business who does not have an act in the formal sense that, you know, all the greats, they go on stage do the same show every night. And I'm not knocking that, but maybe I should do it, but I never have. One of the reasons is that, uh, or one of the devices that produces that result, I should say, is that I answer actual questions from the audience. If there's a thousand people in the room, we pass out maybe 700 cards. I get a couple of hundred cards back with questions, and before I go on stage, I quickly look through them, pick out 20 or 30 or 40 that strike me funny, and that's basically my comedy for that night. And uh, it, it, it's just a matter of taking anything, whether, as you say, it's the phone book or the lyric of some popular song or an item from the news, and perceiving uh, what is inherently funny about it. Uh, so uh, 
I've been lucky enough to get away with seeing that simple thing for all these years. And, and when you did the, the especially the uh, music music lyrics, you were doing it at a time when music lyrics were very ridiculous. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I remember the Gene Vincent tune that you did. <laughs> what was that? Bebop a Lula. Oh, yeah. That's... And uh, the same, uh, you reading that straight through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've done that routine uh, actually since before the days when rock was big. Uh, I, I was doing that very early in my career as a comic in the early 40s. And I can still remember the, uh, the, the the first song I did. It was called Love Somebody. Nobody remembers it now. But it had a really dumb lyric. So it, it just helped that when rock suddenly came in <laughs> a few years later, there was there were even more dumb lyrics. And you were able to take it and go from there. And also, you were the first one to put a young performer on the screen, and that was Mr. Elvis Presley. Uh, I wasn't the first to put him on, but I. I he was the. Uh, did you have? Was he? Wasn't he the? You were the first to have him on national television, though. Uh, no, I believe it or not, I discovered Elvis oh, okay. on national television. But the, but the reason people think that you do is that um, he was on my program for quite some time. He went over to Ed Sullivan. Okay. So that was the sequence. But yeah, I, I was watching television one night, just flipping around the dial, and I suddenly saw this totally unknown kid. I'd never heard of him before. America hadn't at that point. He was doing just a quick number on a summer replacement for the Gleason Show, uh, hosted by the great band leaders Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey. And uh, I recognized right away that he, as the old saying goes, had something. It certainly wasn't a beautiful voice, <laughs> that, that Perry Como or, you know, Ella Fitzgerald would right, make right. lovely sounds. That, that wasn't what Elvis sold at all. It was his total uh, personality, his total projection. He was a good-looking young kid. And there was something kind of goofy and likable and, and fascinating about him. So I uh, made a note to, to our people to, to book this guy. So first of all, you'll have to call their show and find out who he is. I didn't hear his name. And then we just had a piece of good luck. It was about seven weeks later that the booking was finally uh, set up, and, and he appeared. And within those few weeks, he had suddenly uh, become a big hit uh, in the record field. And uh, so it worked out very well for all of us. And um, I was also uh, going through your uh, the bio information that was sent to me, and I didn't realize this with all the books you wrote. You also did a children's book. Yes, I have a brand new one out now. Uh, this is my second. Uh, years ago, I wrote one called uh, Princess Snip Snip and the Puppy Kittens, about a cute little girl. And the new one is titled The Bug and the Slug in the Rug, published by uh, Greenbark Press. Yeah, and I was uh, looking at that. Now, when you do a children's story, how do you, I mean, where do you get the idea for it, first off? I have to return to that earlier answer. I don't know how I get the ideas for anything. Fortunately, I, I get them literally every day, uh-huh. and I've trapped them. But uh, nobody really knows we're creative. I mean, where did Plain uh, uh, get the idea for the Mona Lisa? You know, just decided to paint a picture of this woman. But <laughs> even he didn't know it was going to be one of the classic uh, you know, the paintings of all time. So uh, the mystery of creativity is exactly that, and uh, the, neither the philosophers, the psychologists, or the creative people themselves have much understanding of it. Uh, there, you, you can see this if you trace the question back historically and culturally. You come up with really dumb answers from otherwise intelligent people. <laughs> the two classic answers down through the centuries were A, God, right. and B, the muses. Now, to work first with B, there are no muses, so so much for that. We don't even have to be analytical, waste time doing that. They're totally fictional, imaginary creatures. But by that, I mean the muse of poetry, the muse of music, the muse of sculpture, and so forth. So that's out. Now, let's go back to the uh, first possibility that God deserves all the credit. Well, I, I, I think that's really dumb, and, and I assume there is a God. I'm not talking from the atheistic viewpoint here. But the point is that most of the world's poetry, most of the world's music, most of the world's painting is awful really fourth rate. So are we going to suddenly blame uh, a, a reportedly perfect God for all this rotten verse and, and uh, the stupid movies and things? I don't think so. Uh, and if not, well, you can say, well, maybe the top percent, but that gets into you know, stupid bookkeeping. So the, to get back to the true point, we don't know what it is that gave Einstein all by himself the idea for his remarkable theories. Right. And with the book that... Uh the new book you have, The Man Who Turned Back the Clock. Is there any story that you wrote in this that is a uh, particular favorite? Well, not so much a favorite of mine. I'm like the proverbial father with eight children. I love them all. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the world has its opinions, uh, which is always the case. And there's one of the stories that is attracting a lot of attention right now, one of the new stories. 
It's titled The Day the Jews Disappeared. Yes, I saw that. It, it's science fiction, and, and uh, once you, you accept the basic premise that suddenly next Wednesday morning there are no Jews evident anywhere, uh, then the rest of the story was developed quite quickly uh, by a, a matter of reasoning and predicting what would be the effect on our society uh, if that were to be the case. Mm -hmm. And of course it would be chaos and disaster. Uh, the story actually says something about the, the problem of anti-Semitism. And then there's another story which has had a separate life of its own. Uh, it's called The Public Hating. And it seemed to strike some universal chord because it's been republished in uh, Germany, in Sweden, in uh, Japan, and perhaps by now in other parts of the world as well. It's the story of a public execution and executions, you know, used to be public. It's right. Only in recent ages that they do them in in privacy in prisons. Um, uh, some eighty thousand people gather in Yankee Stadium uh, at a point in the future when it is uh, stated that capital punishment has been formally outlawed in our country, as it has already in most parts of the world. And uh, nevertheless, occasionally the public gets so heated in its uh, 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 anger uh, about a particular uh, criminal that uh, they just can't accept that he's going to go on living. So in this case, they get in this uh, large uh, space and hate him to death. It says something about mass hatred and mob psychology. Well, I recommend it, uh, and I, I'm, what I've read so far I've enjoyed very much, and I appreciate you taking a hour out of your Saturday morning to join us here in uh, Brownsville, Pennsylvania, and I'd like to thank you. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and I have future books coming out, so I'll probably talk to you. I hope we can work something out, and, and thank you very much again for taking time out on a Saturday morning to join us today. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, we've just been talking to uh, Mr. Steve from uh, California. We were doing that for the past hour and had a good time. Hope you were able to uh, enjoy what you've heard. And we'll be back following the news with uh, open line conversation. If you'd like to join us, you're more than welcome here at AM 1130 WASP. How did we become Central Ohio's most trusted team of orthopedic experts? We focus on what matters most, our patients. At Orthopedic One, we know we're only at our best when we're helping you get better. And every day, your commitment to overcoming pain and injury inspires and moves us. That's why we bring our best every day to earn your trust. Find a physician near you at orthopedicone.com. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or DesignerLooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.